Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... I didn't even say anything. Hi, good people. It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture, and we have made it. It is the final episode of season three of Shut Up, Evan. To quote the great Katy Perry, swish, swish, bitch, another one in the basket. Um, I'm so excited that we made it through, and I just wanted to take a moment before we get to the final episode to thank all of the listeners out there, whether you've been with us from the very first episode, or even if this is your first ever time listening to the podcast, I'm extremely grateful for all of you. As many of you know, we are not owned by any kind of entity. There is no uh, force that helps make this podcast get made other than myself and a small team of hardworking creatives. And so we are very, very grateful for all of you who make this podcast worth doing. And I will say, in the brief off-season, I would be extremely grateful if those of you listening feel so compelled to rate and review the podcast on any of the platforms with which you're listening. It is important. I don't ask for it a lot, um, but it would be great if you do that. I would love that. I also want to take a moment to thank all of the people that participated in season three of Shut Up Evan beyond just the guests. Um, And I'm specifically referring to the call-ins, which have become one of my favorite, you know, signatures of the show. And I was amassing the list of who we had on this season, and it's pretty incredible. So I wanted to read it for you now, um, partially as a thank you to these people, and then partially as a little bit of a humble brag. Let's be honest. Thank you to Lucas Gage, Brittany O'Grady, Ben Platt, Sarah Michelle Geller, Mandy Moore, Dorinda Medley, Carol Radzuel, Jody Turner-Smith, Joshua Jackson, Ariana Grande, Raja, Priyanka, Gigi Good. Princess Nokia, Marissa Jarrett Winokur, Mark Jacobs, Padma Lakshmi, Devin Sawa, Sharon Stone, Helena York, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, Kiernan Shipka, Amy Schumer, Lena Dunham, Jamie Lynn Sigler, Alana Glazer, Kate Berlant, Hari Neff, Anthony Porowski, Detox, Juliette Lewis, Sydney Sweeney, Bowen Yang, James Scully, Cheyenne Jackson, Katya, Alex Edelman, Paul W. Downs, 
and the six foot five actor, Lee Pace. Yes, I said I was retiring the phrase, but I brought it back briefly. Thank you all so very much. I just appreciate the fact that you can jump on an Instagram voice memo and more often than not, uh, the people on the receiving line are receptive to doing this, to calling in. And and uh, uh, like I said, very, very grateful. Today, we have the great Christine Bransky on the podcast. But before then, I wanted to do an interview with Jasmine Hughes uh, talking about her recent profile of Whoopi Goldberg in the New York Times that I can't get my mind off of. And rather than talk to you all about it, I thought, why not have the person who created this great piece of journalism, why not have them on the pod to talk about it themselves? First of all, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I'm honored to have you here. Oh, stop. I'm honored to be here. Are you kidding me? I thought you were going to ask me to like write about the podcast, not be on the podcast. I just reread the piece again, this fabulous profile that you did on Whoopi Goldberg. And it's, it's, a marvel like as i love whoopi goldberg and i love this profile of whoopi goldberg and i think each should be um celebrated so (laughs) we're gonna attempt to do both today okay as i'm sure you are acutely aware icons are challenging to profile because there's so much ground to cover that you can often end up skimming the surface in an effort to cover the necessary ground but you were able to definitely go wide and deep in this profile. And so I guess, aside from congratulations, I want to ask sort of how you were thinking about that throughout the process of crafting this piece. Oh, I've written probably by this point, like six or seven or eight celebrity profiles. Uh, And this one was the first time where I like got these huge sheets of paper and like put them up on my wall and wrote like different sections of the story, like Whoopi's bio, like Whoopi in culture, Whoopi with this, us in Sardinia, us in New Jersey, because there was just so much. And I like, you know, I felt like someone like a crazy person trying to solve a mystery with like the red yarn, like going from place to place on the wall. But like you said, there was truly, truly so much and like doing that relatively dramatic, but really helpful visual guide was useful just so I could keep track of everything. And then otherwise, like it's like an abundance of riches, right? I wanted to watch as much uh, of Whoopi's work as I possibly could before writing about it, which meant that I wrote, I watched maybe like 10 of her movies all three of her stand-up specials, a couple episodes for a TV show, you know, the set and the third. And that was maybe like 25% of stuff she's ever done. She's written like seven books and I read five of them just because I didn't have time to read all of them. So it was the sort of thing where I tried to go as wide as humanly possible. Um, but it was more important for me to go deep. You know, it was more important for me to read four out of the seven books completely as opposed to like, you know, reading... 15 pages from all seven books because like when are you really going to get right what's so lucky about doing this story is that all this deep research even though it was enormous was so much fun there was just like days where I would just get up and be like it's 10 o'clock it's time for me to work and turn on Karina Karina and get back into bed (laughs) that's incredible so to back up a little bit can you talk about how the story first came together was it brought to you did you bring it to the times and then how did you decide this, the, you know, we sort of just spoke about the scope of your research, but how did you decide on the scope of the story itself? Because often profiles about Whoopi Goldberg over the past few years that I've read tend to focus on The View, mm. which makes sense. It's her current project. 
But what I loved about this piece is you didn't brush aside the view. You certainly discussed the view, but it wasn't the focal point of the piece. Totally. And, you know, I'm sure it's clear. I hope it's clearer than the piece. I'm such a fan of Whoopi. Like, I idolize Whoopi. And I don't watch the fucking view. So I didn't, you're right. <laughs> but, like, it centers people for, you know, it centers her in people's minds as to, you know, what she's doing now, whatever, whatever. But I'm not really concerned about the view. And honestly, she's been doing it for 15 years. So how much new stuff can you say? I'll tell you the truth. What happened is two separate things. On one hand, I uh, was talking to my editor at the beginning of this year, and I was just talking about like my sky high dreams, like the stories I really, really want to do with my white whales. And I said, Whoopi Goldberg is like my career high, and this is something I want to do. But, you know, maybe in like five years, I don't know if I'm ready yet. And then a few months later, unbeknownst, uh, you know, not knowing about my interest or the conversation I had, another editor offered a Whoopi Goldberg profile to a different writer. And I found out and I basically stole it. I was like, I'm sorry. (laughs) If anyone's going to write about Whoopi Goldberg, it's going to be me. And I negotiated with that person and I got the story because, you know, I have admired her for so long. And the thing that I was most interested, I guess, in going into the story is that like, I've always thought that Whoopi is the greatest. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that lots of people disagree. And I mm. sort of went into it in a, like a naive way being like, but why? There's there's just so much of her. And so that was definitely where I started. It's definitely clear in the piece that you idolize her, but it never veers into feeling like fan service. And obviously you don't avoid the myriad controversies that have fallen upon Whoopi, some of them by her own doing and others, as the piece points out, sort of by people misunderstanding Whoopi or in some instances entirely misquoting her. Um, But I wanna go back to the research of the piece. So you referenced her 1997 book, which was titled Book, her time as a bricklayer and as a morgue beautician before finding success on stage. You reference a Sam Kinison interview in which he stated, Whoopi Goldberg is what happens when a nation is afraid to hurt a person's feelings. You reference a 2004 fundraiser for John Kerry that Goldberg feels was the one time she was really canceled. You spoke to Billy Crystal, Mary Louise Parker, and writer Otessa Moshfeg. It's just your research is so robust. How did you decide who to bring into this piece? And then in the case of the the Kerry conversation, that's from 2004. I mean, that's nearly a two decade old instance that I would reason that many of the readers, this might've been their first time even learning about that. Mm -hmm. So how did you decide where, where to go with the piece and who to talk to? Uh, What's so funny is that when you're saying all of this, all I can think about is the stuff that didn't make it into the piece due to space or editing or something. Like Mm. I was just thinking yesterday that, you know, in Whoopi's uh, stand-up special, she has a character of a surfer chick who talks about giving herself an abortion and it's based on Whoopi's own life. When she was 14 years old, she went into a bathroom in the park in Manhattan because she couldn't go at home with a coat hanger and she gave herself an abortion. It just, and there's things where I'm like, Mike Nichols wanted to do a version of A Star is Born. Do you know this? Mike Nichols desperately wanted to do a version of A Star is Born with Whoopi Goldberg and Richard Pryor about the stand-up community. And it just, there's so many, so many gems. So it's hard. I, I Thank you so much for saying that. And as the writer of the story, I'm just like, oh, there's so much more gold that I could put in. With regard to figuring out who to go to, I think... For sources and things, I both asked Whoopi who I should talk to, and she told me that she and Mary Louise were still great friends. 
But also I, you know, I have this theory that she is a big weirdo, like a big freak. And as a big freak myself, I was like, I, I want to go to other sort of similar freaks, you know, who've like been in this space where they feel like Whoopi, like I said in the story, isn't giving them permission, but they're definitely acting after her. So there's some people who I interviewed who didn't even make it in. Like Tiffany Haddish is the world's biggest Whoopi Goldberg fan. And she got cut from the story for space. The artist Micheline Thomas and I emailed back and forth a little bit and she didn't make it in. But Micheline said these great things where she was just like, I can see how like people like me and Michaela Cole and Janelle Monet are sort of just operating in this space of like, weird black women and that's definitely something that's been strengthened by what Whoopi has done and then there were like the easy things like Billy Crystal I'm a lesbian Billy Crystal is my celebrity crush so I was like I will give anything to talk to this man this it's worth the price of admission uh and then just like with regard to selecting what I did it's sort of it's a crapshoot I just I did so much I reached out to so many people I reached out to like Steven Spielberg I never heard it back I reached out to blah 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 and blah 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 and so I think you just have to cast the widest net humanly possible but with someone like Whoopi you manage to bring in so much even if it's not everything you wanted that it ends up um you know just like actually providing you with so much more than you could ever want mm. you chose to allocate quite a bit of space to that 2004 John Kerry fundraiser and I love that you did because I think there's so much to learn from that incident i'm not sure what the word is so i'm wondering can you recount what exactly happened in 2004 and 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 everything that happened afterwards to lead Whoopi to believe that that is the one time that she's truly been canceled absolutely so in 2003 2004 Whoopi goldberg with like a slew of other celebrities john leguziamo meryl streep chevy chase all these people uh, we're at a fundraiser for the John Kerry, John Edwards ticket. And, you know, it was, it was kind of like a roast. Everybody was saying the stuff about the incumbent George W. Bush. And as someone who was in, you know, like seventh grade around that time, we were making a lot of the same jokes, which is to say, like, their jokes were really sophisticated, but they weren't like uh, uncommon, you know, like, you know, fill in the blank for yourself. The man's last name was Bush. But what happened is the next day, and all the press coverage, like some newspapers turned it into like a real ugh, offensive and insulting event. And I went through probably like, let's say 15 newspapers and different ways that they covered it. Right. And the stories that came out immediately after, like the day or two after the event being like they featured, a, uh, you know, like the list of celebrities who were actually there. Guziamo, Streep, whatever, whatever. And, but there was a lot of ire directed towards Whoopi, right? So much so that people were like, oh, we can't even print what she said. It was so horrible. And then as the story got reported on more and more, the names of those other celebrities who were in the room and the things that they said sort of started to fall away. And this mystery around Whoopi's comments, which were deemed unprintable, like started to rise. And it, by the end, it sounded like if you read a newspaper story about it, that like a whoopee was the only person in the room and she just like went off about George Bush for 45 minutes or something, as opposed to going up on stage for three minutes like everyone else. And um, so after this event and after the really negative press coverage, at this time, Whoopi was the spokesperson for SlimFast. We remember all of these like ads with her like holding out <laughs> her jeans. 
uh, SlimFast dropped her and the way she tells it and the way that she has always told it is like work dried up for her. Stuff disappeared. People started associating with her. Her name became a punchline. And I think for someone who came into the industry you know, I think a lot of Black actors come into the industry with a built-in Black audience because that is who is introducing them and that's who's with them from the beginning. And in all these conversations about Whoopi Goldberg and the crossover appeal, so to say, like Whoopi sort of began already crossed over because she started in the industry with the blessing of, you know, Mike Nichols and then Steven Spielberg. And then, you know, these white men sort of showed her the way. And I think this cancellation incident really showed her that, like, it doesn't sometimes it doesn't even matter like who endorses you like people are willing to pull out the rug from beneath you and maybe it's about race maybe it's about gender maybe it's just about like how people feel about you they've been waiting to maybe go away but I think the the wind was really taken out of her sails and the most offensive thing about it to her was that because her comments were deemed unprintable no one ever printed what she actually said and this was in 2004 like no one an iPhone and all that stuff and so like this sort of like apocryphal tale of her saying all these horrible things just kept growing and growing and she never had any proof and then the week that we're closing the story uh the fact checker one of the fact checkers assigned to my story found the quote like totally accidentally and read it to her over the phone and she was like holy shit like i haven't heard this in 20 years i've been searching for this for so long can you send this to me thank you so much and it was really important for me to have the quote printed in the piece itself because I wanted to give her what she was looking for, which was proof. And I know that, I'm sorry, I'm going on, but I also know like what it means to have a place like the New York Times, both for its place throughout history, but also Whoopi's from New York. It's her hometown newspaper to be the one to print the joke in the end, 20, 15 years later. And um, we were able to do it. And I hope that it just... I hope that it feels for her that we have righted some wrongs. And that's part of what I think makes this piece so special is the role that you and, and the fact checker and the times play in this piece. And again, that's why I think this is bigger than just a celebrity profile. I really, I think it's important that people read this piece. Um, and that's just one of the reasons why now, just for clarity, because in my mind, if someone was printing uh, headlines about me saying, I said something that I didn't say, and I'm as prolific as Whoopi Goldberg, I would come out and just be like, I didn't say it. Why at the time was everyone running with this hearsay? I mean, it's, you know, you've made it clear now, decades later, that that's not what she said. She had to have known that at the time she wrote the joke. People just didn't believe her. And I think the reason why is that very few people came to her defense. You know, there were so many people in that room. It was a big, you know, democratic fundraising event. There were so many people who could have like opened up their mouths and said, Whoopi didn't say anything worse than the rest of us. And I think that was the most hurtful thing for her because it's one thing if she has the proof or she had a video recording, but like, why would you need to show a video if there were 300 other people there who could who could have backed you up and didn't, you know? Yeah. And also it was shocking to read that just one year earlier, her then boyfriend, Ted Danson, uh, came to a roast of her wearing blackface. And not only is that shocking, but then to think that a year later, it's Whoopi who is canceled for doing something that she didn't even do. And here is Ted Danson in blackface with proof of, of, of that happening. 
And he didn't, from my understanding, there was no, I mean, obviously there was some blowback at the time, but his career did not suffer as a result. No. I mean, there was a little more time between those two events. I think the dance in blackface incident happened in the, maybe it was like five years or something, but you know, they broke up pretty soon after that event. And it's, this is not something that I asked Whoopi about, but in my research, like she has given interviews or did around that time about just like how sort of sad and out of control the entire thing got, you know, Whoopi maintained that she told Ted to don blackface and he said all these crazy things. She's like, I wrote a lot of this material because this is how people have treated us as an interracial couple. And and I'm just, you know, I am just speaking out of my butt at this point. But like, I think that she really tried to be vulnerable and brave in her own sort of twisted way. And getting that strong, strong reaction was really hurtful to her. But I think that once it resulted in the end of their relationship, like that must have been deeply, deeply painful. And you're right. Like. Ted Danson, I mean, Ted Danson was just on one of the biggest TV shows of the past five, 10 years, and no one ever brings this up. People always bring this up with Whoopi and like, you and I know why. It's racism, it's sexism, it's misogyny, it's all of these things that like Ted was able to scoot by. He and Mary Steenberger seem really happy, but he's never asked about this event. Whoopi is all the time and that's fucked up. It is very fucked up. I want to ask you about visiting Whoopi's home in Sardinia. Ugh. But but before I ask that, one of the many impressive things about this piece is that you went there. We live in this age. I mean, I have done multiple celebrity profiles at this point, largely due to COVID, where I've never actually met the person, mm. let alone been in their home, let alone had a, a newspaper or a magazine send me across the country to go and visit their home. And that's exactly what happened here. What do you think that this piece gained having you not just in her New Jersey home, but but going to Italy? Oh, I mean, I gained so many Delta miles. So I'm grateful for that. Um, <laughs> I so firstly, you're right. And like, this is the most wonderful, magical thing about working in a place like the New York Times, because like you said, there are most publications aren't able to allocate these sort of resources or even the amount of time. Like I felt like I had a crazy rush, but, you know, I had three, four months to work on this story. Lots of places you talk to the celebrity on the phone for an hour and then you turn in a draft a week later. And if we think, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking like getting existential about celebrity profiles, which you and I should do one time over a drink. But like when we think about the function for them, right? I want to say that mm -hmm. two generations ago, it was to work on behalf of the artist or the subject, right? Like to provide a conduit from them to their audience and to just, you know, like clear some things up. And then a generation ago, it was on behalf of the audience. It was like, oh, you love this person so much. You obviously want to know so much more about them. So I'm going to go in, the journalist is going to go in and work on your behalf to, to mine the depths of your subject, to ask them the questions that you wish you could ask them. And now we're in this generation where there's social media and all this stuff. You can like go on Clubhouse, may it rest in peace, or TikTok or whatever, and sort of like shoot your shot and maybe you'll hear back from your subject or your celebrity and maybe not. And so I think the function now is to like do more analysis than ever. And I think that analysis really comes from like being around the person. You read so many like 
Vanity Fair and celebrity profiles from the 90s. And the person is like, oh, I spent six months just hanging out with them before I wrote down a single word. And it makes me fresh. I just like, oh, I could die. But at the very least, I'm happy that I got to spend like two full days with Whoopi in Italy and a couple of hours with her in New Jersey. And it's not Obviously, I can't say that I know every single thing about her, but it's a little bit like speed dating. You're, you're like compressing as much as yourself or like trying to pick up as much as you possibly can in a short period of time. And it's impossible. It's impossible to do that same sort of work over Zoom, because if I talked to Whoopi over Zoom, I wouldn't have seen her with the people around her with like her kid and her grandkids and how she interacted with them. I wouldn't have seen her interact with Tom, her business partner and Paolo, their friend. And she would, I would never seen her like become Eartha kid or like make fun of the fly drinking in her Prosecco. You know, it's just, it's so much more like question and answer, like dry cut and dry, bada bing, bada boom. But being able to just sort of just like soak up her presence and magic, especially for a person like Whoopi Goldberg, who I cannot stress enough, is so weird and cool. She just like makes her own fun. And there's no room for boredom on Zoom or on the phone. There's no real room for like circumstance or for things to happen beyond your control. And so I felt really, really lucky that I was able to go and just vibe. I mean, the very first time I met her, I was like, I don't have any questions for you. I just want, what do you want to talk about? Our second meeting, I'll come with a list of questions, but you can guide this part of the conversation on one hand, because I want you to trust me. But on the other hand, I'll learn so much about you based on what you want to talk about. And it's definitely apparent in this piece that you earned her trust, which is, I think, another really important component to a celebrity profile that's not often dissected enough, which is, I feel like as a consumer of the celebrity profile, I'm very aware of when the writer has gained that trust and when they haven't. Now, one other question about the home in Sardinia, uh, which you do describe in the piece a little bit, but I'm just curious if there's any details from the home that stand out to you to this day, or you're still... uh, you know, parsing over in your brain. The bidet. The bidet. <laughs> Evan Ross cat. So I showed up and like we hugged. She showed me around the house. She showed me to my room. You know, like the most incredible thing about this profile is not that I got to see her in Italy, but I got to stay at her vacation home overnight. So I had like my own little suite with this incredible bathroom and a little balcony. And an incredible bidet. I was like, oh my God, I have made it. Like when I, after she gave me the tour, I put my things down. I went to get my notebook and I just had to like sit down on the toilet and be like, oh my God, oh my God, you're at Whoopi Goldberg's house in Italy. What is going on? This is crazy. The house was gorgeous. She has, I mean, this came through a little in the piece, but Whoopi is an avid, avid art collector. She said that um, her, her good friend, the late Elizabeth Taylor, encouraged her to buy most if not all of the art she owns and so you know in New Jersey she has all these incredible things and you're like okay that makes sense because this is where you live but in Sardinia she has the most interesting bizarre beautiful art whether it's like something that's been professionally done by some young artist she saw in a gallery in New York and she had like his superhero figurines flown over. And then one painting I asked her about, she was like, oh, Jim Carrey did that for me. It's a portrait that he thought that he really liked for me. And it's just 
like her the greatest thing about going to Whoopi's homes is like those interiors are just as like magical as she is which is to say they're so bizarre they're so fun they're so unexpected and again I got to learn so much about her just based on like what she likes to look at have you spoken with her since the piece came out no I talked to her business partner Tom Leonardis and um it was a very, very positive conversation. Tom and I separately like fell in love over the course of reporting. He's like a 60 year old white gay man. And I'm like, are you my best friend? Um, but Whoopi, no, I actually, I talked to Tom last night and he was like, you should just text her. And so actually when you and I get off of this interview, I'm going to shoot her in text and hope to God she doesn't leave me. <laughs> I don't think she will. But I asked that because I've had experiences. I'm not sure if you have in the past where I'll profile a celebrity and I'll feel like we form some kind of bond. And then the reality sets in once the piece is out that, you know, I am no longer in their life. This was a work arrangement for both of us, but, you know, especially for them, no matter how many, you know, feelings I might have about them. Um, so have you felt at all any kind of, you know, a sense of just missing the fact that for a brief period, and not to say you won't remain friends, who's to say, but like, she is no longer in your life in the capacity that she was for those four months that you worked on this story. Totally. I don't know if you feel this way, but like once I really get into writing a profile about someone, I start dreaming about them, you know, and I like yeah. become obsessed with them. I'll go out to dinner with my friends and they'll order a glass of wine and I'll be like, Whoopi Goldberg drinks wine. Do you know that? The first time she drank wine was on the day because you're just so in the mix. And then when the story comes out and you stop talking, it feels like a breakup in many ways, right? You're like, I was so focus which is next and focus is next to obsession and obsession is next to um what's the word infatuation that you're like wait was I in love with you you know not in a romantic way but you were just like you consumed all of my thoughts in my dreams even for such a long time and so it does feel like there's a real space fortunately slash unfortunately I am a legitimate fan of Whoopi so I like already had posters of her in my home just casually so I do technically still see her face every single day I'm not gonna miss Whoopi because I'm gonna see that girl again I wanted to talk about the ways in which you inserted yourself into this story because I think it plays a big role in how this piece uh, comes together as a whole. And I'm wondering if I can put a, a, a paragraph into the text chat right now. And I'm wondering if you could read that paragraph and then expound on this, this entry because I think there's a there there. Oh, okay. Paragraph goes. In my early 20s, I would take the B train from Prospect Park to the Upper West Side, where I would unleash my myriad anxieties on a junior therapist because she was all I could afford at the time. She was beautiful and confident and told me she learned English by watching episodes of Friends. But the thing I hated most about her was that all she ever seemed to tell me was that I was normal. That wasn't what I needed to hear. In fact, it was offensive. I had never aimed for normalcy, a land for middle children and people who knew how to drive. I liked feeling different from everyone else, and I had felt that way as long as I could remember. What I wanted was to feel okay about those differences, to feel their power instead of their weight. Mm. What compelled you to include this in the piece? <sighs> stress it was uh like a couple <laughs> days before the story came out and I was like I, I I'm just gonna write the I actually sent this paragraph in a note to in an email to my editor and I was like I don't know what this is I just I felt like I had to get it out you could put it in if you want I don't care you know but I'm really glad that it made it in because I I thought that without it the story is sort of missing something like 
you know, you, you have your actual time peg, you know, like I'm talking to this person because they have an album or a movie or this or a TV show, but there needed to be like an emotional peg, like why I cared so much about Whoopi Goldberg and why I fought so hard to like, you know, claim her, name her as the genius who I think she is. And What's funny is that this is one of the parts that people are responding to most strongly in the story. I mean, everyone's obsessed, A, with the cover and Whoopi's pink Birkenstocks, and B, with, like, all the funny, ridiculous things she says to me, where she's like, yeah, I do feel like God, obviously. (laughs) But what's been most touching for me is people who are like, oh, my gosh, I, like, it's not that I needed permission to be weird or Whoopi taught me how to be weird, but it's nice to just to get you know like a boost of confidence from watching somebody else do it and I basically up until I sat down and wrote this like I couldn't put into words why I felt so strongly about Whoopi I was like she's a great actress she is brilliant she's so funny but I couldn't say how I felt you know I'd use my feeling words as my couples therapist might say and um once I sat down and sort of tinkered with this, it all really came together and the story started singing to me. And mm. it's the thing that, like I said, it's one of the parts of the story that I'm most proud of because of the number of people who've told me that they felt the same exact way. Yeah. Okay, before I let you go, I do want to talk about how you landed the plane on this interview, or excuse me, on this profile rather. Um, I'm still thinking about it. It's it's just so remarkable. It feels so earned and it's so delicate. And, and to your comment that you made earlier about the things that you pick up in person via Zoom, you would have never gotten this moment from a Q&A over Zoom. You might not have even gotten it from a Q&A in person at a coffee shop. I mean, this was so much about you witnessing her greatness. And so I'm just wondering if you could talk about uh, this ending. Oh my gosh. This is actually the the question of my dreams because as a, like a newspaper nerd, like there is a very particular story that I was trying to emulate and you and I are going to get into it. But I, um, I once, when I, when I first started out in journalism, I talked to a, a magazine reporter, like a celebrity profile, actually, um, profile writer who told me that she always wrote the endings of her stories first. Cause she was like, I don't know how it ends. That means that I don't know my subject well enough and I have to go back. And I've been thinking about that for five years. And as much as I wished I could follow it, I was like, that is crazy because how's the story going to end? My editor would ask when I turned in these half drafts, I'd be like, I will let you know when I found out. I'm excited to find that out too, (laughs) right? And so in these times where you're stuck, where you're writing, you know this, like you go and you read other profiles, other magazine stories to give you some inspiration and also to find things to emulate. And there's uh, an Alec Baldwin profile in The New Yorker from a while, you know, maybe like 10 years ago, he was on 30 Rock. Um, I forget, God, who wrote it. It's someone, it's a man who still works there. And I read it over and over and there was something about the ending. I love Alec Baldwin because I think he's a truly tragic figure. He's a man who's been depressed his whole life and nothing bad had ever happened to him. And then he killed somebody and I'm just like, 
he's he's my next dream profile subject mm. just like the most tragic man but in this great new yorker profile the thing that's running through it that i thought that the author did so well it's just like his anxiety and his sadness that it like that it propels him through life like that is his animating force and the way that story ends is not with any sort of like deep exposition or the the writer's not being like armchair psychologizing and baldwin he really just like lets it all speak for himself which is to say that the profile ends with just like a long um quote of baldwin on the phone with his assistant just being like okay and then what okay and then what yes okay and then what just over and over and over again and that stuck with me just because it started it like kept ringing in my ears after i finished reading it and i tried a bunch of different things when i was writing Whoopi, and then i went back in my notes and like the eartha kit thing i think i wrote like two sentences about it in my notes it really didn't stick out to me but the more i thought about it i was like if there is a point in which Whoopi is saying one thing that really wraps up everything about her, it's actually not her own words. It's Eartha Kitts. But the fact that she's embodying it, she's making it goofy, she's making it funny, it's become accessible, but it's so real. It's so vulnerable. It's so deep. Like, that is the Whoopi Goldberg experience. And so I tried really hard to, like, find a way and to use your language I was going to my editor being like I gotta let this play girl I'm gonna try to do something crazy um but to find a way to really like I want to say let Whoopi speak for herself but that's not true because she does it throughout the entire story but almost to like let her interests or her jokes or even Eartha Kitt herself speak for Whoopi in a way that I thought like if you came away with anything from the story that you understand why like this compromise thing, why Whoopi embodying the words of someone else could land so powerfully. I want to encourage anyone listening, not anyone, everyone listening to run, don't walk to read this profile, read everything Jasmine Hughes has ever written, but start with this Whoopi Goldberg profile. It is miraculous. And I'm grateful not only to you, Jasmine, for writing this profile and for taking the time here today, but I'm grateful for the New York Times for allowing voices like yours to put works like this into readers like ours lives. I feel enriched having read this story. I'm excited about it. I've loved sharing it with people, talking with other people about it, deep diving Whoopi myself, talk, talking with you here today. It's just, it is a, a, a real marvel. I hope you feel the flowers that so many of us are giving you. And I'm just, I'm in awe of you. Oh, Eva, that's so kind. Thank you so much. And I just want to say thank you so much for being not just a reader, but a close reader. You know, there's so many points in writing, and I'm sure you felt this way. We were like, no one's even going to read this. They're <laughs> not going to get what I'm trying to do. And it's just, and it's so nice to have this conversation with you because I really feel like not only did you enjoy the story, but you really got it. And I'm very, very, I'm very, very thankful. So Well, thank thanks. you. I look forward to the Alec Baldwin profile you will maybe be writing next or any other works that you put out in this world. <laughs> I, I know um, myself and the readers will be uh, tuning in, watching, listening, taking it all in. So Jasmine, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Bye. Shut up, Evan. She is a 15-time Primetime Emmy Award-nominated actress who won in 1995 for her role on the sitcom Sybil. She's also a two-time Tony Award winner for her roles in the Broadway productions of The Real Thing in 1984 and Rumors in 1989. 
Her robust film credits include Nine and a Half Weeks, The Addams Family Values, The Birdcage, Bullworth, Cruel Intentions, Bowfinger, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Chicago, Marcy X, Eloise at the Plaza, Mamma Mia, Into the Woods, A Bad Mom's Christmas, and Mamma Mia 2, Here We Go Again. Mamma Mia 3, question mark, we'll find out. She originated the role of Diane Lockhart on CBS's The Good Wife and spun that character off into her own series, The Good Fight, which just began its fifth and final season, now streaming on Paramount+. She also subsequently appears on HBO's The Gilded Age. You know the face, you know the voice, you know the presence. She is one of one. She is the great Christine Baranski. Shut up, Evan. I want to start off by thanking you so much for taking the time today. It's a, it's a real honor and privilege. My pleasure. Are you not the man who broke the the um the meme the the um Elon Musk? It is I, yes. Um, A little bit of background on that for those that don't know. When Christine attended this year's Met Gala, a photo went viral of Christine staring down Elon Musk. uh, And it sort of took on a life of its own on the internet from people just uh, feeling like uh, you were a relatable queen in that moment. I had no idea because I don't follow social media, but my daughter said, Mom, are you aware of this? And then all these people started saying, oh my gosh, are you aware of this? And I even got the picture as a Mother's Day present. Well, it's now imprinted in history. Now, the last time we (laughs) spoke, you and I was actually ahead of that night. I interviewed you for a story for The Cut. Yeah, it was your 70th birthday. You were going to your very first Met Gala wearing Tom Brown. And so I want to follow up on that. Did you have a good time that night? I had a fabulous time. Who, Who has a birthday, much less a decade turning birthday at the Met Gala. I had said to my family, oh no, I don't want a big birthday. Let's just do a quiet family dinner, maybe a summer picnic, you know. And then I get, you know, Marla, my publicist said, you've been invited by Tom Brown to go to the Met Gala. And I thought, well, I'm not going to pretend it's my birthday, but you know, when I did casually mention to people, oh, it happens to be my birthday. They were so excited for me. And they sang at my table. Can you imagine? Oh, wow. Oscar Isaac and, and Tom Brown. And, you know, I mean, I was just like, who, who gets to have that? But yeah, I was standing in line with all the other VIPs. You, you stand in line for a very long time. My joke is that there are shorter lines at the DMV than at the Met Gala. And then once you're photographed, <laughs> Then you kind of breathe a sigh of relief. You just hope you don't trip or anything happens. And uh, actually, I loved my outfit. I thought it was so badass. It was so Tom Brown, and I felt so comfortable in it. I didn't have to wear high heels. I wore a Cuban heel. And so many of the ladies standing in line for that length of time were in, you know, those you know, dental floss on a toothpick kind of um, stilettos. Oh, yeah. But it's sort of an out-of-body experience, the Met Ball. And I'm glad I did it once. I'm, and I'm glad it was that. I, I'm glad it happened to be my birthday that night. It made it all the more special. <laughs> the occasion is known for very great hobnobbing. It is a mixture of famous people from all walks of life. Was there any encounter you had outside of Elon Musk uh, that was memorable for you? A, a lot of people there. I actually... 
did not know, but then I thought, well, I want to know them better. I mean, I was sitting across from Lizzo and I, it was, I kind of wanted to put my phone down and say, Lizzo, would you please sing happy birthday into my phone? But I didn't get around to it, but clearly there's, there's so many people that you think, wow, there's, there's so many people to get to know in the world. It's such a variety that it's inspirational and that especially there's so many young, extremely cool people. It was a pretty great way to be 70 and feel like I'm surrounded by all of this, you know, extraordinary energy field of creativity and, and just, you know, breaking boundaries. We're in a, we're in a time where we're just, there's such fluidity yeah, I was pretty much inspired all the way around. Speaking of the Met, I spoke to your lovely daughter, Isabel, ahead of today, and she told me how you take her boys to the Met for hours to look at the armor and also at the Buddhist art. And I'm wondering, what's the last great thing you saw at the Met with the boys? We enter uh, down downstairs, uh, which is an easier entrance. And so we go through the Greek section and then we all stand in front of a, a, a piece of wrought iron that is a griffin. And I said, when, you're, when your mommy was a very, very little girl, this was her favorite work of art and it's the griffin. And then from there we go and they have favorite places uh, that they like to visit. And we go through the medieval hall of course, to the armor, we go to the koi pond, we go to the crystal reindeer. And then so, somehow on the same floor are all those Buddhist statues. And my eight-year-old, he's now eight, but when he was, God, he must've been three or four, he was enchanted with the Buddhist statues. So I think it's important every time you go to introduce them to one new thing, but then visit and revisit so that it becomes a part of their life that, oh, my grandma took me here and I remember going there and this is my old favorite place. So that the museum just becomes a part of their memory bank. Now that it's a back to school time, I'll get them, I'll get them back to the Met and the Museum of Natural History, of course. Another thing Isabel told me ahead of today, and I must give her credit, she did a great deal of helping me. How do you know Isabel? So Isabel first reached out to me on Instagram after that Elon Musk photo went viral. <laughs> and then we connected and I let her know that I was speaking to you today. And I always sort of liked to, I wanted to ask good questions. And so she was very instrumental in helping ahead of today. She's the one you said interview. She's so interesting. She's a writer and she, I mean, she is so articulate and I'm so proud of both my daughters, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, well, she was speaking to me about your deep love of music and the importance of instilling that in your grandkids. She told me that because of you, her kids can name classical musicians and even told me that her four-year-old recently shouted, Minnie, come here, it's Bach, when Bach came on the radio. And that you make them name and identify all the instruments being played. And I'm wondering where your love of classical music came from. Well, um... Early on, I, I had a, a grandmother. I shared a bedroom with uh, my grandmother until I was eight years old. After my dad died, we moved away, but she loved music and dancing. And I think my mother and my father were both part of a choral singing group. They sang Polish songs. I, I was grew up in a bilingual household and they loved the performing arts and my fondest memory of my father was of him taking me to see this Polish 
singing and dancing troupe called Schlonsk at the Kleinhans Music Hall in Buffalo, which was like going to Carnegie Hall. And at the curtain call, my father was shouting bravo and tears were falling down his face. And I'll never forget being so embarrassed and telling him, you know, touch your stuff, stop shouting. And, but the memory never left me that my father, this big grown man, could be so moved by performers. And I think that never, I think that had a huge imprint on me. But my family loved music, particularly Polish folk music. And when I got to Juilliard, because I was at the famous Juilliard School of Music, and it was right across from the Metropolitan Opera and the, what it was then Philharmonic Hall. I would get tickets for standing room or I'd be handed a ticket and I'd get to go and hear opera or I'd, I remember hearing the great Arthur Rubinstein. I heard Horowitz. So with my grandsons, I simply, uh, when they're going to bed at night, I say, this is music that will really calm you down. I just think it's such a gift if you can give your children or your grandchildren a love of music because life is difficult and people can disappoint you but and life can disappoint you or be tragic, but music doesn't disappoint and it will always be a source of deep comfort. And in a, I wish I had been a musician if I hadn't gone into acting. I, well, it's never too late. I even, uh, I sang with the New York Pops once and Skitch Henderson said, it was a Carnegie Hall and he said, sing whatever you want, as long as half the, half of it, half the program has to be Gershwin, but sing whatever you want in the first part. And so I sang La Vie en Rose in French. I sang Le Beau Soir by Debussy. And then I sang the Seguidilla from Carmen. How I ever had that guts. <laughs> I had an orchestra behind me and I thought, this is a once in a lifetime, I'm going for it. And I did it. And I can always say I sang, you know, Carmen and Carnegie Hall. So. I was going to say, you got to do it. Before we get into more, let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsor. The hot days of summer mean only one thing. I need a can of something and not just any something, a can of can. Can is the queer-founded, cannabis-infused social tonic that is the summer beverage I cannot be without. Each can is made from five ingredients, fresh juice, herbs, agave nectar, cannabis extract, and water. The fresh juice is no BS either, with sourced ingredients like Sicilian lemons, Fijian ginger, and Massachusetts cranberries. Yum. My favorite flavor, you ask? Well, I'm currently a pineapple jalapeno kind of gal, but a cloudy apple rhubarb light always manages to hit the spot too. And look, it may not be the season of giving, but that doesn't mean you can't receive. Shut Up Evan listeners can receive 50% off their first order of can. Yes, that's 50% off. Go to drinkcan.com and use promo code ERK50. That's drinkcan.com, D-R-I-N-K-C-A-N-N.com, and use promo code ERK50 for 50% off. Let summer go to your head by sipping on some cans. And we're back. So we've been speaking about your daughter, Isabel, and she actually wanted to call in and ask you a question herself. Oh my God. <laughs> Hi, Mom. It's Isabel. I'm recording this from your closet at the lake house where me and the boys and Christopher have spent a very loud, very fun month of summer. Um, I am also really grateful to you, Evan, for giving me the opportunity to ask this question. 
um, which I think is actually really important for the whole world right now. I see so much vitriol and anger and blame out there. And I remember growing up in a house that was filled with gentleness and generosity and self-expression. And I can't help but wonder if people were taught that creativity was absolutely essential from an early age, as I was by you and Pappy, if this world wouldn't be really, really different. I notice in my own life as I've stopped practicing law and gone back into being an artist that I am myself gentler and more generous and more joyful. And I think art has a lot to do with that. And I feel really grateful that you guys gave me a sense that self-expression is dead serious work. So I want to know, how did you do that? And how do you think we can teach our own children that and also model it in our communities? Thanks. Hello, Isabel. First of all, I love you so. I love you, love you. And it was a joy to raise you and Lily. You were the most wonderful little girls. And now I have three incredible grandsons who are so full of life. You know, I talked about this when I spoke to Juilliard students uh, at the commencement about being present, showing up and like giving people your full attention, particularly children, like not being distracted, but just children are so naturally open and intuitive. And it starts really with just playing with children. It's listening to them and, and listening, you know, telling them stories, acting out stories, being a good listener and being present. Um, Simone Weil, the Catholic mystic said, the greatest gift you can give another human being is your full attention. I think the world would be a better place if we just were better listeners, mm. but really attentive, not like Oh, I'll, you know, I'll listen to your opinion and then I'll give you mine. Just curiosity, curiosity. I don't remember us um, when uh, you guys were growing up, you and Lily, I don't remember. I mean, we did take you to writing classes and you did study piano and all, but I don't remember it being a rigid household where we, you have to learn piano and you have to do this or you have to do that and you're going to grow up to be... If anything, we were, I was a little wary of grooming you to be performers because I knew how hard it was. And I didn't want you to feel like you had to live up to anything. I wanted you to be yourself. But I do remember there was, a, <laughs> it was very fluid. There was a lot of fluidity in the house. And, and because we didn't have a TV for so many of those years, there just was, was no TV in the house. I just remember you naturally just playing outside. It's There's so much to be said for play. Playing isn't leisurely, doesn't mean leisurely and lazy. It means joy, you know, joy channeled into, into some form of human activity, whatever it is. And I always made a joke that world leaders, the best thing they could do would be get together at some kind of camp and put on a musical because there's nothing more bonding you know when you're high school musical right absolutely yeah. when it's over everyone's weeping, devastating yep. devastated that you know their west side story or you know imagine if if they just get together some of these world leaders they could play mame they could be hello dolly they'd get it out of their system all these waiters singing to them and and they would be adored and maybe they'd stop making war i'm being flippant now but in, anyway 
that makes me so happy, Isabel, to think that, you know, the best thing that could happen in your life is that you discovered your artistry. I always knew you were a writer and that was your form of expression, but you were just the most delightful, vivacious little girl on every level. So wherever you were going to channel it, it was going to be wonderful. Well, and what a testament to you as a parent for giving your children the access to feeling so unburdened by some of the things that I think so many other kids feel or the judgment so many other kids feel and, and just allowing them, as you say, this fluidity of expression. That's that's uh, to be celebrated. Now, you mentioned musicals, and I want to ask you about the great Stephen Sondheim. You've been a part of a number of Sondheim projects over the years, including Company, Sweeney Todd, Follies. I could name many, many more. I'm among millions whose lives Sondheim has profoundly touched with his work, but you are among an elite set that got to know the man intimately. You two were neighbors in Connecticut, and you, along with Meryl Streep, as you know, took him to dinner not long before COVID. And I'm wondering if there are any memories that you can share from that dinner or during your time with Steve over the years. I, I got to know Steve or I got over my shyness of Steve mm. late in his life. and But I'm happy that I discovered, wow, I could actually have dinner with him. And, and, and he, was, he was happy to have dinner. And, and be called and hey neighbor do you want to get together Meryl's in the country and can we come <laughs> over and it was still COVID but it wasn't serious lockdown and I remember saying to him no Meryl and I will bring pizza into your backyard and we'll sit you know 12 <laughs> feet from you can we just see you my favorite Stephen Sondheim dinner of all time I did Sweeney Todd in Washington as part of the it was the very first production of the Sondheim Celebration. It, Sweeney was the lead-off musical. And Steve was coming for the first run-through in the rehearsal hall, and it happened to be my 50th birthday. See, I, I do decades, really. I know how to do a decade. <laughs> yeah, you really do. <laughs> he came, and everybody's so nervous when Steve shows up. I mean, it's like, you know he hears everything, for one thing. You know he's going to hear whether it was a sharp or a flat, or if you've got one note. The thing that most people don't realize, they even performers, is that he's really on your side. I always thought, ultimately, I came to realize that Steve was a simply great collaborator. He was there to help if he gave you notes. He wasn't sitting back like about to criticize you. He's intimidating because anyone with that level of talent and intelligence that Steve had, of course, would be intimidating. But on the day that we did the um, first run through, sketchy run through, he was there. Anyway, we get through it. And it was my 50th birthday and Stokes Mitchell and a bunch of my pals said, well, we got to take you out. Come on. So we went to a fish restaurant in D.C. and Steve was staying behind uh, to give Chris Ashley his notes. And then who walks in round about just as we're finishing dinner, but Steve Sondheim and he said, I never miss a 50th. And he sat down and we had glass after glass of wine and Steve just talked about working on West Side Story with Bernstein and Robbins and he actually said 
Robbins was the one who pulled it all together. He was the ground zero in that collaboration. But then I remember walking home. It was a beautiful spring night. We were in DuPont Circle and I was just walking next to him thinking, you know, who gets a 50th birthday like this? But I got to know me, you know, he's just a tremendously articulate and, and thoughtful man. What amazed me is when he said he doesn't read much. I thought, how could you not read much? You're one of the most intelligent human beings on the planet. He watches movies. Uh, he was a great, he's a great, great film buff. You know, when Steve passed, it was as though all of that knowledge, I mean, he, yes, he wrote books and there's millions of interviews, but you never want someone like that to leave the earth because it will never come again. Certainly that golden age when he was writing and, and producing with Hal. I'm just so glad that you know, I came from Buffalo and the first musical I saw as a Juilliard student, I was up in the upper, upper balcony in the cheapest seat, looking down at Elaine Stritch and Donna McKechnie in this musical called Company. And it was just the epitome of New York sophistication. And that's 1970. <laughs> I always find myself trying to find and discover new Sondheim songs. And lately I've been really into, it's actually revisiting, but Evening Primrose. And, the and I love the song I Remember So Much. And at times I I'm wondering, are there any Sondheim deep cuts, you know, sort of lesser known tracks of his or more obscure songs that uh, are particularly meaningful for you? I'll tell you, people don't know this, but I happened to go to the New York Film Festival back in the 70s, maybe 75 or 76. He wrote the score for a film called Stavisky. The score of this, it is gorgeous. Look at that. I will, I will. I want to ask you a bit about your acting style. There's been a lot of discussions recently, and it's I think it's swelled even in the last couple of weeks around method acting. And as a Juilliard drama graduate, I was wondering if your approach to acting has changed over the years, being that you've worked with so many directors and actors in so many varied mediums. Has your sort of, you know, the way in which you approach acting, your style, has it evolved throughout time? I don't think that I have an acting style. I, I am Christine Baranski. I can't get out of my own skin. So when I'm playing, it's either Diane or it's Agnes or whoever it is, <laughs> you're pretty much going to see this nose, this set of eyes. You know, my voice might vary a little, but, but uh, we were trained very much in doing character work. So when I was at Juilliard, I was always working on plays and they were, you know, I was, I played mothers. I played you know, I played all different ages and, and ethnicities. I, you know, it was, 
they, they put a great uh, focus on learning specifics of characterization, which is why I think maybe I've had a long career because I'm not afraid of approaching, okay, it's not quite like me, but right. I'm going to hone in on, on the specifics of this human personality and also research into the period. We, we did so much period work. So if you do a Shavian drama, you want to read the works of Bernard Shaw, but you also want to know about the, the era in which he lived. You know, I, I also think Juilliard, for all the training and all, I went out of town for years and did regional theater because those were the jobs that I was getting. I wasn't, nobody knew me in New York and I wasn't, I, I was anxious to work and I was anxious to use my skill set. So leaving Juilliard, although it's great training, I always say it's rather like training for like, like English actors get that sort of training, or at least back when I went to Juilliard, it was almost like English training. Uh, but I had a lot of gloss on me. You know, I think I sounded a bit, you know, grand. I was really trained. And I had to let a lot of that go. A, a lot of it has remained. I don't know if you've noticed, darling. Some of it. Just a bit of a bit of it is still there. No, not at all. I had to let go of the speech and the voice and just become actually more like Christine, who when I left Juilliard, I was this still, you know, this tall, skinny girl who was going to play roles that I was suited for. I wasn't going to play play at Madame Arcadena just out of Juilliard, even though at Juilliard I was getting all these great, you know, mother roles and yeah. dramatic and all this but you know leaving Juilliard I was suddenly Doreen the maid or I was the best friend and you know she stoops to conquer whatever I had to just loosen up mm. and I think a lot of my um pursuit as a actor over the years has been just to loosen up and trust that I actually have an inner power as a human being I don't have to work at it I remember my acting teacher Michael Kahn saying you know, you'll always probably have this natural flamboyance. You have to work at being, just being relaxed and be real. You know, I don't think just naturalistic acting is the best acting, but when I say natural, I mean relaxed and simple so that you 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 reveal character without working at it. I, I think my whole pursuit has been, don't work at it so much. <laughs> Before we get into more, let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsor. Can we talk about Sunday Riley? Not only is it the name of not one, but two of my favorite Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters, it also just so happens to be one of my favorite skincare brands. Sunday Riley uses advanced, clinically proven ingredients blended with balancing botanicals for non-irritating, fast-acting formulas. Just because the end of times might be near doesn't mean you can't have great skin. Some of my current obsessions include their global best-selling Good Genes All-in-One Lactic Acid Treatment, CEO 15% Vitamin C Brightening Serum, and their Autocorrect Brightening and Depuffing Eye Contour Cream. As a person with notoriously puffy eyes, the last one is a really saving grace. If you want to visibly improve the look and feel of your skin, look no further than Sunday Riley. Sunday Riley is available at Sephora and Sephora.com. And we're back. 
One of the interesting aspects of your vocation as an actor is that, you know, you do this training and you learn about the art form of acting, but something else that comes along with it is being interviewed and the expectation that you are going to reveal aspects of who you are as a person, which is so unique to the craft of acting. Doctors are never asked about their personal lives. Lawyers are not asked to disclose things. And yet here we are. And I'm asking you, tell me about taking your grandsons to the Met, for instance. Is that something that you ever get used to? And, and do you ever feel instances in which you're either asked something too often to the point where you just simply don't want to answer it or times when questions get asked that you want to you know, present a boundary? I, d I don't happen to think just because I'm an actor that I that I have to reveal every aspect of my life or my opinions. I, I happen to because we're living in this Internet age and branding yourself. I had a, a conversation with my younger daughter yesterday with Lily. And I said, you know, I know people are doing it and they have all these followers and all. But to me, the idea of branding is turning yourself into a commodity. And that's a function of capitalism. And I'm not a commodity. I'm a human being mm. and I'm an artist. I'm a performing artist. And I don't I want to be fluid as an artist. I don't want to say this is my brand. This is who I am. Check it out. This is my hair. This is my moisture. I though all those things are nothing to do with my life as an artist. And when I perform, I want people to believe that I'm the character I'm playing. I don't want them to look at Christine Baranski, the brand, who happens to be in a movie or she happens to be in a play like they'd have another set of expectations about me. I want, I think real artists need fluidity. They need to surprise people and they need for you to just enter their their work. And in, in, in the case of acting, you want people, your whole job as an actor is to convince people you're somebody else. My publicist will tell you, you know, I remember Marla once said, uh, you could do this, thing where you stand in front of your mirror and you take off all your makeup and then you show people like your skincare regime and it was like no <laughs> <laughs> I don't care I'll promote this movie or this tv show some other way but no, no you're not coming in my bathroom <laughs> Well, speaking of great artists, something that I do on this show is I have celebrity uh, friends or fans of the guests call in to ask a question. And I actually have a fellow Juilliard alumni, Lee Pace, the actor Lee Pace, wanted to phone in and ask you a question. Oh, my God. Hi, Christine Baranski. This is Lee Pace. We've never met, but um, I'm a huge fan of your work. And we went to the same school. So I wondered if you have any fun stories from your days at Juilliard. Oh God, where do I begin? I, I just, you have to understand, I came to Juilliard. I got, I barely got in because I had this lisp and it's a story I've told too many times. So I never want to talk about my sibilant S, but I, I, I did have to re-audition and get rid of my sibilant S. But I was a 19 year old virgin from a Polish Catholic high school called Villa Maria in Chictawaga, New York. And I got to Juilliard. I was like, it was the greatest thing that could possibly happen is I got a scholarship to Juilliard. But, you know, I just sort of pretended to be sophisticated. And I, of course, wasn't. But uh, 
I mean, I, those the early days, I was group three, you know, I always say the elevator had the new car smell back then, but my favorite thing of all with Juilliard at, at least at the time was I would just be in the elevator with all these insanely famous people. I was in the elevator with Leonard Bernstein. I was in the elevator with Jerome Robbins, who was going to teach because I was in the elevator with George Balanchine. I even made it into the elevator once with Maria Callas. Mm. It was like my favorite thing was elevator rides. Like, who am I getting? And, <laughs> and then, of course, all of the little ballerinas, they would be in the elevator, future New York City ballerinas. And then you'd have people with cellos and violins. And it was so exciting back then. And leaving Juilliard and then walking across the plaza at Lincoln Center and maybe somebody would hand me a ticket to the opera or the concerts or I'd get a ticket. It was, those years were so heady to me. I, um, I'm lucky I wasn't hit by a car. I, I, my head was just in the clouds and all I did was dream about whatever I was doing next. Pretty, pretty funny. Um, and kind of sad too, because a lot of the kids came under scrutiny that, that was, was too harsh, you know, being scrutinized to your voice and your body and everything being taken apart in front of your peers and your teachers. A lot of, a lot of kids did not have happy experiences there. Hmm. I do want to ask about a few of your film roles. Uh, before I do that, I just want to shout out two of my favorite of yours, which is Frank Oz's Bowfinger, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And Richard Benjamin's Marcy X. Oh my God. Marcy X. When was the last time you thought about Marcy X? You're, I'm, I haven't thought about it in years, but there is a story there. You know, the oh. ending wasn't working and Scott Rudin wanted Paul to rewrite it so that that crazy senator lady, you know, the final <laughs> scene where she lets loose. That was tagged on months later. And I remember having to do all that choreography throwing myself on tables and going down the banister. And it must have been four or five in the morning and we were still shooting it to get these inserts of me going crazy and doing this crazy dance. That The crew was really fading. Everybody was just like, Richard Benjamin at one point said, come on guys. If Christine can do it, you can do it. <laughs> and I thought, wow. And I remember driving away. I think Dawn was raking when I drove away in the car back home to Connecticut. I must have, I looked like a two-week-old banana. I was so <laughs> bruised. What a visual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I was bl literally black and blue all over my legs and all. So uh, that's Marcy X. Yes, happy memories. Love Marcy but X. Bowfinger. Oh my God! Do you know that was Eddie Murphy's first day on the set, and I had to do that scene of walking. Oh, yo! When you left Phoenix, it wasn't because you wanted to raise soybeans. You had to get away. Why? Why was it because you wanted me and it burned inside of you? I beg your pardon. Come back to Phoenix. Stop this madness. Let me in on whatever mission this is that you're doing. Oh my God. <laughs> it's so good. It's a very underrated film. I feel like more people should see it. I don't understand it. It should be 
right up there with the bird cage. I agree with you. And it's it's such a unique premise. And then I'm sorry, but it's one of Eddie Murphy's funniest performances. And that's saying a lot. After I did that movie, I said, Eddie Murphy is a great actor. Another role of yours that I want to touch down on is the 1995 gay rom-com, Jeffrey. <laughs> the red ribbon I wear stands for AIDS awareness. The lavender ribbon is in memory of those who have died. The pink ribbon is for breast cancer. And, uh, oh, the diamond spray is a gift of my first husband. <laughs> <laughs> which is the film adaptation of a play that takes place during the height of the AIDS epidemic. And I'm wondering what drew you to this role. I mean, looking back on it now, decades later, that film was extremely ahead of its time in depicting not only the story of what it was like living with AIDS, but doing it with um, such empathy. Two, two words, Paul Rudnick. But don't forget, I did um, Adam's Family Values. Oh, I don't forget that. And that is... Paul Rudnick's screenplay, that Thanksgiving pageant. Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul Rudnick just goes where other people dare not. And he's always ahead of, he's he was ahead of it then, back then. He's ahead of it now. He's writing a, a play that's, you know, dare I say it's about political correctness. But I mean, he is so fearless and Deeply, deeply, like, you know, Steve Martin, that kind of just deep, witty, funny humor. So, yeah, it's all Paul Rudnick. Speaking briefly of Adam's Family Values, I mean, that film really became such a breakout success. Many people longed for a third film. Unfortunately, with the passing of Raul Julia, we did not get to see that. But I've always longed to see either a Becky Martin Granger origin story <laughs> or a spinoff centered around Camp Chippewa. And I'm wondering if that's something you would ever consider. Well, first of all, you'd have to have Paul Rudnick write it. And you do realize in our age now how careful you would have to be. I mean, but there is enormous humor to be had in a, in a camping situation with those two people. Yeah, yeah. Good idea. Okay. Uh, I'll pitch it to Paul. <laughs> You're open to it. One other film I wanted to touch down on briefly was Cruel Intentions, which is one of my absolute favorite films of all time. And it's so interesting thinking back upon it now because you're in it with Susie Kurtz, for instance. There are these real established actors. But then you have this, this cast, Reese Witherspoon, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Selma Blair, all of whom, yeah, went on to have these incredible careers what was it like in 1999 at the time, though, filming that movie? Not were, were you tapped into the tone of it? Because obviously it's it's based off of the play, but it's very... Well, the play, too, is very sexy, but the film is... It's got a very unique tone. I mean, the director had to beg me to do it. I was still in L.A. doing Sybil, I think, and I was anxious to go home because I was... I. The kids were in Connecticut, but it was really hard to be away from my kids. And I just wanted to be on hiatus. And the direct, to his credit, he would not take no. He begged me. And I said, I, he's, it's only a few days work. And these, these young people are terrific. And 
I'm so glad I did that movie. I, it's, first of all, yet another cult movie, mm-hmm. like Marcy X, like Bowfinger. I've done all these movies. <laughs> yeah. The Ref. Yeah. I've done all these movies that people are like, oh, that I could have easily said no to it. I remember getting a residual for Cruel Intentions that paid for all of my <laughs> furniture at my summer house. So anyway, I'm glad. And then who knew baby these people would go on to be who they were they were young beautiful actors and they're beautiful actors now but and selma was a riot oh my god she was so fun well speaking of selma blair for the last call in i have a question for you from selma blair ms bransky it's your daughter susia <laughs> i am wondering <laughs> Who you would like to play your mother in your life story or play something wonderful, but who'd play your mother? Who could possibly play you? Not that you're going anywhere, of course, but I'm curious. And I happen to love and admire you. You were wonderful and patient and kind with me. Oh, I've got, you know, she just popped into my mind, but Maggie Smith. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we'd love to see it. Oh, God, what a wonderful question. I will ruminate on that. But, uh, God, well, I'm, uh, you'd have to get a 90 year old actress to do so. Those are, that's Slim Pickens. Let's say Maggie Smith for now, but we're open to other casting opportunities. I am a daughter of Maggie Smith, and I'll tell you why. I was in still in high school, sitting in the balcony of Shays Buffalo Theater in, in, in Buffalo, New York, watching Laurence Olivier play Othello. And she played Desdemona, and I still remember seeing her. I remember following her career. I remember going to Stratford, Ontario, where she performed for several summers in a row with a great actor named Brian Bedford. I went all the way up there to see her. I remember seeing her do private lives in Chicago. I mean, I, you know, I worship her. I still worship her. So I want to ask about one of your first film roles in Adrian Lin's Nine and a Half Weeks. A 1986 New York Times headline read, How Nine and a Half Weeks Pushed an Actress to the Edge. And it chronicled how actress Kim Basinger was made to feel humiliated by her audition and had to be pursued and convinced by Lin to do the film. You've been in Hollywood for decades now, and I'm wondering how you feel about the changing culture with regards to how predominantly male-directed films, how they treat women in, in Hollywood. Things have gotten exponentially better, and it's a long time coming. But yeah, I remember Adrian saying to me, please, you know, she's very nervous and all. I remember Kim being very nervous. I think she felt very, very vulnerable doing that movie. I only remember doing two scenes with her. One was we were shopping, I think, and then another was a dinner scene. And I had a spoon on my nose, as I recall. I was still doing the real thing. And I remember her being just, well, jaw-droppingly beautiful. But but she was very vulnerable. But also, that was what she needed to be in that, in that film. And, you know, 
Yeah, that school of bullying actors into giving performances, particularly particularly females, to get a, a performance out of them, the male director would would bully them or break them down. I, I have seen that happen. I think it's reprehensible. It's high time it was called out and it's unacceptable. Speaking out and um, calling out is is hugely important. I want to close out with a little bit of a game. You've had some incredible co-stars over the years. I want to name some of them. And if you can just sort of spitball the first word that you associate with this name. So first we have Dolly Parton. The goddess. Meryl Streep. Girlfriend goddess. <laughs> Steve Martin. Like super cool intellectual. Richard Gere. Ooh. Sexy. Agreed. Jim Carrey. Formidable. Formidable energy. Formidable discipline. He trained with a Navy SEAL to do the Grinch. I mean, that guy earned every, he earned every penny he made on that movie. Really hard work and he never saw him complain. A great admiration for him. Alan Cumming. Oh, just, <laughs> just badass fun. Just and so bright. Lisa Kudrow. Let's see. First word comes to mind. Yummy. Just like a like a cookie. You bite into it. And it's just soft and sweet, but like just wicked good. Mm, that's that's such a great description. Uh, Warren Beatty. Oh. Oh. Do do like size count? Like <laughs> Okay. There. Oh. <laughs> and last but not least, uh, Robin Williams. Oh, a heart in shoes, like my late husband. Very sweet. Well, I want to thank you so much. Before I let you go, can I just ask, yes. Mama Mia 3, question mark. I know we joke that by the time it's done, we're going to be going down the hill, dancing queen using walkers. I'd pay good money to see that. <laughs> I'm game. I still got my high kicks. I'm, I still practice. <laughs> Great. I'm very glad to hear it. Well, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you for including Isabel. Oh, absolutely. And congratulations to you on the new season of The Good Fight. Sixth season. It's really good. I'm so proud of that show. We made it to and a very heroic, quietly heroic ending, may I say, that I am very proud of. Well, I cannot wait. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too, Evan. Thank you for all the smart questions. Bye. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan! Shut Up Evan is produced by me, Evan Ross Katz, with audio editing by Sophia Asmuth and social media by Griffin Dunn. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers for their financial support. And thank you to you all, the listeners, for helping us keep the lights on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.